Gothendag, and a hearty greeting. The Crime Viking here, with a quick plug for my new true crime podcast. And your host, the true crime cat lawyer, has been so kind as to lend me your ears for a brief moment, without even having to raise an axe to remove them. Crime Vikings are nothing without their ship's cat, and my cat, the beautiful Miss Delilah, is the mascot for the longship. Our first foray into the waters takes us to the land of Mercia, which is a posh way of saying Stoke-on-Trent, England, where Wedgwood and Royal Dalton pottery comes from. Our maiden voyage examines the tragic murder of midwife Samantha Eastwood, whose remorseless killer was likened by police to the infamous Sowen murderer, Ian Huntley. I'm on Instagram and Twitter as at CrimeViking. I'm also still taking case recommendations, so it's your chance to steer a course and pledge yourself for a life at sea with your captain, the Crime Viking. Episode 1 now out on iTunes, Spotify, Deezer and all good podcast hosts. Once again, at Crime Viking on social media. Come, join the Oathsworn. wonder why on just random days you're just in a really crappy mood all day long i'm always in a crappy mood all day long but there's a very good reason for that on our podcast a date with murder we are going to break down what horrible true crime event happened on this date in history join me i'm kelly and i'm ashley as we go on this depressing but sometimes hilarious journey together find us wherever you get your podcasts Amen. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, we have a podcast here that might provide that answer for you. It's called, what is that banging in the background? <laughs> my cat's eating. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. She, she can't hear you. And how did he even get a hold of the refrigerator shelves? Welcome to True Crime Cat Lawyer. I'm your host, Elise. Every other week, I'll share a true crime case from my hometown, the Pacific Northwest. And sometimes, my cat Winston joins me. This podcast contains content of a graphic nature that might not be suitable for all listeners, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, and crimes against animals and children. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome back to the show. If you've been missing my solo episode, you're in luck. It's just me today. Back in September, we did a series on missing persons in the Pacific Northwest, and I felt like it was time to do another one. 
So for the next two episodes, we're going to bring you 12 missing persons cases from Oregon, Idaho, Washington, and British Columbia. For today's episode, we're covering six cases from Oregon and Idaho. Let's get started. Christy Farney was born on January 18, 1972 in Los Angeles, California. Unfortunately, there isn't a lot of information about Christy's childhood until she was six years old. It was at that point that Christy's mother sadly passed away in a motorcycle accident. Christy and her brother lived with their father after that before he remarried. A year after her mother passed, Christy told the quote-unquote authorities that her dad Keith had sexually abused her. There weren't any details about who the so-called authorities were or how all of this came up. But Christy and her brother were placed in foster care in Medford, Oregon, pending the investigation into the allegations. This case has so few details, it's hard to put the pieces together with so much information missing. I have no idea if Christy's brother knew about the abuse or if he was abused as well. I wish I could fill in the gaps, but there just isn't a lot of information that's been made public. Again, I'm not sure what evidence the investigation into Keith uncovered, but Christy was scheduled to testify before a grand jury regarding the alleged abuse. So on the morning of December 14, 1978, Christy gave her testimony to the grand jury, then her social worker escorted her back home where she was supposed to head off to school for the day. Christy's foster mom was recovering from surgery at the time, so she didn't walk Christy to school. Instead, the foster mom watched Christy walk toward the school until she was out of sight. The school called Christy's foster parents at 1.30 p.m. to tell them that Christy never showed up for school. I wasn't able to confirm this anywhere, but I assumed that the school knew Christy would be coming in late that day because of her having to testify in front of the grand jury. But they likely expected her to be only a few hours late, not past lunchtime. But despite the school notifying Christy's foster parents of her absence at 1.30, police weren't notified about Christy's disappearance until 4 p.m. that afternoon. That's two and a half additional hours that police could have been searching, retracing Christy's steps, and interviewing friends, family, and other witnesses in order to find Christy. When police did start investigating, they of course learned about the pending abuse case against Keith, and they learned that Christy had only been in her foster care home for three days before she disappeared. So naturally, the foster parents and Christy's dad, Keith, were the first people they wanted to talk to. Keith took two polygraph tests and he passed. Both he and his wife, Christy's stepmother, cooperated with the investigation and were eventually ruled out as suspects. Keith was also cleared of any wrongdoing in the pending child abuse case, likely because Christy was no longer around and it kind of seemed like they didn't have any other evidence besides her testimony to build a case against him. I couldn't find much information on the foster parents, only a note that some people thought they might have been involved in her disappearance. A lot of people in the Medford community speculated that Christy may have been abducted by a family member and either murdered or hidden in a safe location because of the pending child abuse case. But police didn't agree with that. They felt Christy's abduction was more likely a non-family abduction. But unfortunately, they didn't have any leads and the case went cold quickly. Christy's dad, Keith, moved to California after she disappeared. He later died in a car crash in 1994 at the age of 47. At that time, Christy's brother was the only close family left, although Christy did allegedly have family in Oregon, Arizona, California, and Michigan. Christy's case was reopened in 2008. Two people had confessed to murdering her, but after investigating the confessions, 
police didn't believe that either person was actually connected to the case. One of the confessions came from Henry Lee Lucas, who is infamous in the true crime community, specifically for falsely confessing to numerous crimes. Police appear to be confident that Lucas had nothing to do with Christie's disappearance. Police have no suspects in the disappearance of Christy Farney. They've re-interviewed her relatives and have family DNA on file, but there haven't been any matches so far. Christy's case is the oldest missing child case in Jackson County, Oregon. Her brother tragically committed suicide, although it wasn't clear when exactly that occurred. If you have any information on the disappearance of Christy Farney, please contact the Medford Police Department at 541-774-2250. The next case takes us north of Medford to the cities of Woodburn and Kaiser. This is the disappearance of 26-year-old Cynthia Martinez. Cynthia was the oldest of six kids, and she herself was the mother of four young children, including a two-month-old daughter. Family and friends describe Cynthia as a dedicated mother who loved music and spending time with her sisters, joking and laughing. Cynthia had a job working at a clothing manufacturer, but she was out on maternity leave because she had just recently given birth to her two-month-old daughter, Sophia. Cynthia eventually wanted to go back to school and become a police officer. Sadly, she would never get the chance to do that. On July 15, 2017, Cynthia's parents took her out for a birthday breakfast. Her actual birthday was on July 13th, but that was during the week, so it makes sense that they waited to celebrate until the weekend. During breakfast, Cynthia's family made plans to go hiking at Silver Falls the next day. As for the evening of July 15th, Cynthia made plans to go out for the first time since she had had baby Sophia. She got all dressed up in a cute floral romper and lace-up heels. According to her parents, who'd offered to babysit Cynthia's kids, Cynthia left for the quinceanera she was attending that night in Woodburn. Around 10.30 p.m., Cynthia's mother called to check in with her. Cynthia told her she was still at the party and was waiting for them to cut the cake. That was the last contact Cynthia's family would ever have with her. The next day, when Cynthia didn't show up for the family hike, her mom initially thought maybe she just slept in. She didn't start to worry until she called one of her other daughters, and she told their mom that Cynthia had never come home, and she hadn't heard from her either. Cynthia's mother contacted police immediately. Her daughter was responsible, and it wasn't like her not to come home. Although Cynthia's mom notified police, she wasn't about to just sit around and wait for the police to do their job. She started checking in with all of Cynthia's friends to see if they'd heard from her since the party. Cynthia's mom started retracing Cynthia's steps. She found out that Cynthia had met a friend at the party and they left to go to a bar called Tequila Nights in Kaiser, Oregon. When Cynthia and her friend got to the bar, Cynthia's friend took her phone and her ID to hold for her because Cynthia's romper didn't have any pockets. So Cynthia's parents headed to Tequila Nights and asked to review their security footage. They saw Cynthia and her friend arrive at the bar, and the two basically just hung out for a while. Then, Cynthia's friend is seen leaving the bar without Cynthia. It's super unclear whether Cynthia's friend told her she was leaving, or if she left alone or with a guy. I'm really not sure. But Cynthia didn't appear to know that her friend was leaving because around 10 to 15 minutes after her friend left, Cynthia is seen on the surveillance video exiting the bar into the parking lot. Cynthia then comes back inside the bar 
alone a few moments later. And remember, Cynthia now doesn't have her cell phone, so she can't get an Uber, she can't call a friend or one of her sisters to come pick her up. She has no way of communicating with anyone she knows. Around closing time, at 2.30ish in the morning, Cynthia was seen leaving the bar with two unidentified men in a blue minivan. Obviously, the surveillance video didn't have audio, so it wasn't clear what kind of conversation took place between Cynthia and the two men, but it's believed that Cynthia may have asked for a ride or one of the men offered to give her a ride since he lived in Woodburn, which is also where Cynthia lived at the time. In any case, the last sighting of Cynthia is the surveillance footage of her leaving Tequila Nights with the two unidentified men. Cynthia's parents were able to get still shots of the surveillance video, and they shared photos of the man seen walking out of the bar with Cynthia on Facebook. Someone recognized the man as 30-year-old Jamie Alvarez Oliveira, who I'll be referring to as Alvarez. Another person sent Cynthia's mom Alvarez's address. So Cynthia's mom went to the address she was given, and she saw a blue minivan parked in front of the house. It appeared to match the blue minivan that she had seen in the surveillance footage. Cynthia's mom knocked on the door, and the woman who answered denied knowing Alvarez. But after some poking and prodding from Cynthia's mom, the woman eventually admitted that Alvarez was her husband. But she was adamant that she had no idea where Alvarez was, and she wouldn't say anything else. After this exchange, Cynthia's mom went straight to the Kaiser Police Department. At this point, Cynthia had been missing for 24 hours. Kaiser PD opened a missing persons investigation for Cynthia. Thanks to the efforts of Cynthia's parents, they had a head start on identifying the men who were last seen with her. They quickly identified the second man, although they never publicly named this man. All the police would say was that the man was cooperating with the investigation. And according to this unnamed man, he also got a ride home from Alvarez on the night of July 15th. It's not clear whether he actually knew Alvarez or if they were strangers to one another, but in any event, this man told police he was the first to be dropped off because he lived in Kaiser, which is where Tequila Nights was located. Both Alvarez and Cynthia lived in Woodburn, which is about 30 to 45 minutes north of Kaiser, so it makes sense that the unnamed man would be dropped off first as Alvarez and Cynthia made their way back to Woodburn. Only, Cynthia never made it back to Woodburn. Police publicly identified Alvarez as a person of interest in Cynthia's disappearance on August 9, 2017. Alvarez was a laborer who made his living harvesting berries. He would call in every day to receive his work assignment. There wasn't a set location he would work at, and he might not work at the same location every day. As police looked into Alvarez's life, they couldn't find any connection between him and Cynthia. The two had never met before, and there was no indication that they knew each other. I wasn't able to find this confirmed by police, but I believe the family has stated that Cynthia didn't know the unidentified second man from the bar either. Police believe Alvarez left Marion County, Oregon on July 16, 2017, sometime before Cynthia's mom showed up at his doorstep looking for him. There were a ton of rumors and speculation that Alvarez fled to Mexico. However, police haven't publicly stated whether they believe that's where Alvarez is located, and they've declined to confirm whether they've conducted searches for Alvarez in Mexico. Police haven't classified Alvarez as a suspect, but he is wanted for questioning with regard to Cynthia's disappearance. According to Kaiser PD, 
the investigation is active and detectives continue to pursue leads. However, a grand jury hasn't been convened to hear the case. Cynthia's kids alternate weeks between their grandparents, Cynthia's parents, and their biological father. Poor baby Sophia likely has no actual memory of her mother as she was only two months old at the time of Cynthia's disappearance. Cynthia has several identifying tattoos to look for. She has the name Dominguez on her upper chest, the phrase trust no one across her breasts, the word charisma on her upper right arm, a princess crown on her upper left arm, the phrase forgive never forget on the top of her left shoulder, the name Jesse on the top of her right shoulder, 503 behind her right ear, the phrase walk by faith not by sight on the outside of her right calf, and Marilyn Monroe intertwined with a skull face on her right thigh. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Cynthia Martinez or the whereabouts of Jamie Alvarez Oliveras, please contact Detective Andy Phelps with the Kaiser Police Department at 503-856-3497. For our next case, we head to Idaho. And this case may actually have a connection to one of the cases we covered in episode 27, Missing Children of the Pacific Northwest. In that episode, we covered the disappearance of Stephanie Crane, and we discussed the highly suspicious Keith Glenn Hescock. Police believe he is responsible for kidnapping and likely murdering Stephanie Crane. However, he died in 2012 following an altercation with police. So any information he had regarding Stephanie's disappearance and or the location of her remains died with him. So you might be asking, why am I rehashing a case I've already covered? Well, Hescock may be guilty of another abduction and possible murder in the state of Idaho. 20-year-old Amber Hoops was an extremely shy but funny, silly woman. She was a regular churchgoer, a creative writer and photographer, a piano player, and an accomplished singer. Amber had plans of possibly going to culinary school, but for the time being, she was working as a nanny and she helped her grandparents out in the auto body shop they owned. Amber also lived with her grandparents in the house next door to the body shop. On the evening of September 14th, 2001, Amber talked to her sister on the phone until about 10 p.m. Amber's grandparents went to bed around 10.30, and according to them, Amber was in her room at that time. Around 1 a.m., Amber's grandma woke up and saw that Amber's TV and lights were on in her bedroom, but Amber wasn't in her room. The back door of the house was unlocked, so Amber's grandma woke up grandpa, and they both started looking for Amber. When they couldn't find her in the house, they assumed Amber had gone next door to do some work in the body shop. Apparently, Amber would occasionally use the business's computer to send emails. Amber's grandparents found the computer had been left on, but there was still no sign of Amber. Even more concerning, one of the shop's trucks was missing. Amber's grandparents said it wasn't normal for Amber to leave, especially in the middle of the night without telling anyone. As far as her family knew, Amber didn't have any plans that night. And remember, Amber was described as being very shy, to the point of social withdrawal. So the person she was closest to was her sister, and she obviously wasn't with her. So after finding no sign of Amber and finding out that one of their trucks was gone, Amber's grandparents called the police. Police conducted searches for Amber on September 14th and 15th, but there was no sign of her. Police did find the missing truck in an abandoned lot, and the keys were still in the ignition. 
I didn't find any information on what was found or recovered from the truck after police processed it. I'm not even sure they were able to confirm whether Amber was the one who took the truck the night she disappeared. All of Amber's personal belongings were left behind, including her paycheck. It seems like Amber being a runaway was quickly crossed off the list as a theory for her disappearance. So now we bring it back to Keith Hescock. Hescock had connections to Amber's family. He was a friend of one of her relatives, and he'd previously worked for Amber's grandparents' body shop. He allegedly quit about two years prior to Amber's disappearance, but according to her grandparents, Hescock had a vendetta against them, and he allegedly threatened them shortly before Amber went missing. Amber's grandparents quickly voiced their suspicion that Hescock was involved in Amber's disappearance, but police didn't initially look too closely at Hescock. He supposedly had an alibi, so he was essentially crossed off their list. But everything changed after Hescock was accused of murdering several young girls in the Idaho Falls area. Unfortunately, he couldn't be re-interviewed by police because of his death in 2012. After his death, police uncovered more information that led them to believe Hescock could be a serious suspect in Amber's disappearance. They learned that the family member who'd originally provided an alibi for Hescock had lied to them. Although police now believe that Hescock kidnapped Amber and buried her body in an unknown location, there's no evidence that definitively links Hescock to Amber's disappearance. If you have any information on the disappearance of Amber Hoops, please call Crime Stoppers at 208-522-1983. We'll stay in Idaho for this next case. Kristen Dunlap was the middle child in her family. She was spunky, loved to laugh, loved to dance, and had a free-spirited demeanor and a huge heart. Unfortunately, Kristen had a difficult childhood. Her parents went through a divorce, her and her siblings became part of a blended family, and then Kristen's dad passed away. Kristen was also diagnosed with ADHD and had several runaway attempts under her belt by the fall of 1994. It was around this time that Kristen was dating a married man named Corey Castro, who was 10 years older than her. The two met when Kristen was working the Roundtable Pizza booth at an Art in the Park event. Castro was working for the Coca-Cola company at the time. It wasn't exactly clear, but I assume he was providing vending services for the event. In any case, the two began dating. According to Kristen's friends, Castro quickly began love-bombing her. He'd shower her with compliments and attention right after they'd got done fighting. Again, according to Kristen's friends, she had them take pictures of bruises on her neck and below her right eye in case something bad happened to her. She told her friends on more than one occasion that Castro was abusing her. But Kristen never filed any domestic violence complaints and no charges were ever filed against Castro. So that's kind of the background on where Kristen was at the time of her disappearance. Now, keep in mind, Kristen was only 17 at the time. But on October 14, 1994, Kristen wrote a letter to her family telling them she had to, quote, get away for a while, end quote. But she made it clear that she had every intention of returning within a year. Kristen gave a few more details to her friends. She again mentioned that she needed to get away from her abusive boyfriend, Castro, but she also told her friends she had to get away from quote-unquote family issues. Although she wasn't specific with her friends, it was well known that Kristen often fought with her mom. 
Because Kristen had attempted to run away several times in the past, this letter didn't raise immediate concerns. Friends and family assumed that Kristen would be back and honestly probably thought it was safest for her to be away from Castro. So Kristen's mom drove her to a friend's house where Kristen planned to stay for a while. That was the last time Kristen's family saw her or had any contact with her. But that wasn't the last time Kristen was seen. According to reports, Castro allegedly came and picked up Kristen from her friend's house on October 14th. After that, Castro took a trip to McCall, Idaho. It's unclear whether Kristen went with him for sure, but her friends believe she was in McCall at some point because her social security number was used to fill out a job application at a local hotel. It appears Kristen only worked at the hotel for one day. This was also around the same time that Kristen stopped cashing the social security checks she received from her father's death. Family and friends became concerned that Kristen was in a situation where she couldn't come back home. Police interviewed Castro and he denied ever abusing Kristen and claimed that they never fought, which is a huge red flag, honestly. Every couple fights, it's normal. And just to be clear, I don't mean there's abuse in every relationship or that it's okay. I just mean that it's normal to bicker and argue. No one ever gets along all the time. But Castro's statement wasn't the only red flag that he threw up. There was also the fact that Castro was a registered sex offender who'd been charged and convicted of lewd conduct with a minor, and he was on parole for theft when Kristen went missing. But all of this just painted the picture of a gross man in an inappropriate relationship with a teenage girl. It didn't necessarily mean he had anything to do with her disappearance. And police had already classified Kristen's disappearance as a runaway case, which meant that she didn't receive the attention or investigation that she deserved. Her case wasn't reclassified to an endangered missing persons case until 1998. That's the same year that Castro went to prison after being convicted for sexually abusing his new girlfriend's child. Sadly, Kristen's case went cold in the years following her disappearance. The cold case unit took over the case and started looking at it with fresh eyes in 2011. The first place they started was with Corey Castro. Castro told detectives he didn't know Kristen was missing for the 10 years he was serving time for his sexual abuse conviction. He again claimed that he and Kristen rarely fought and he denied seeing her while he was in McCall and claimed to have no idea that Kristen was last known to be in that town. During this interrogation in 2011, Castro claimed that the last time he saw Kristen was in a meeting with Kristen, his parole officer, Kristen's mom, and his wife. Apparently, the meeting was orchestrated by Kristen's mom after she contacted the police in an effort to keep Castro and Kristen from seeing each other. Castro was told by his parole officer that he couldn't keep seeing Kristen, which, um, duh, sir, she's a 17-year-old girl and you're almost 30 but I digress. Anyway, Castro told investigators that he and Kristen stopped all communication after this meeting. He told investigators he thought Kristen might have moved to California to get away from her family. Castro allegedly passed a polygraph test, but I only saw this as something he said, not something that was ever confirmed by police. So based on the supposedly favorable polygraph test, Castro claimed his innocence was quote-unquote validated. But again, that was never confirmed by police, 
just something Castro said. The cold case unit allegedly exhausted all investigative leads. The case is officially listed as inactive, but remains open. In January of this year, Castro was shot and killed by two Oahe County deputies. The deputies were at Castro's house to serve a civil order requiring Castro to move out of the home. Castro's wife had filed the order ahead of the couple's divorce hearing, which was set for the day after Castro died. When deputies arrived at the home, Castro had some kind of weapon, which he refused to drop after being told to do so by the officers. Castro became agitated and allegedly charged at the officers with the unidentified weapon in his hand, which is when the officers shot and killed him. In the weeks leading up to Castro's death, police had responded to his residence almost seven times. If Castro knew anything about Kristen's disappearance, sadly, we'll never know. There isn't any evidence linking Castro to her disappearance, and there have been no leads on her case since she disappeared in 1994. If you have any information on the disappearance of Kristen Dunlap, please contact the Boise Police Department at 208-377-6790. Before we get into our final two cases, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Hey, all you true crime cats and kittens. Winston and I have a goal for 2022. We want to grow our Patreon group to 25 members, and here's why. I have a full-time job, and I'm not in a position to make podcasting my full-time job. So instead of taking the ad proceeds and Patreon proceeds for myself each month, Winston and I take all of our proceeds each quarter and donate them to worthy pet nonprofit organizations, crime victims organizations, domestic violence awareness organizations, and much more. So for those of you who don't know what Patreon is, let me explain. Winston and I currently offer three tiers, the cat-friendly tier for $1 a month, the cat person tier for $3 a month, and the crazy cat person tier for $5 a month. At each tier, there are different benefits and perks for being a member of that particular tier. Our $1 tier is the most affordable option, totaling just $12 a year. With this tier, you get a shout out on social media and you help us support various organizations. Not only that, you also get to help decide what organizations our quarterly proceeds will go to. At our $3 tier, you'll receive the same benefits as the $1 tier, but you also receive monthly mini episodes. And one of the best things about Patreon is that you receive instant access to the backlog of mini episodes the instant you sign up to join. We also offer early ad-free access to our main episodes at this level. Last, but certainly not least, we have the $5 tier. You of course receive all benefits afforded to the $1 and $3 tiers, but you also receive a True Crime Cat Lawyer sticker pack thank you card, exclusive quarterly merch, monthly bonus episodes, and an exclusive Patreon series covering cases of lawyers committing crimes. This is easily our most popular tier and is a great value for listeners. So if you're interested in some extra content or just want to help support an animal or true crime related nonprofit, head over to patreon.com slash truecrimecatlawyer to join today. That's patreon.com slash truecrimecatlawyer. 48 hours. These are the most critical moments to find you in the event of an emergency or worse. Waiting for the legal process to access your important history or information can take weeks. With help you find me, you have your own secure and encrypted digital if I go missing file that can give your most trusted people access to vital information much sooner than the authorities. 
Each person you share with has its own access rules and everything is completely encrypted. Not even Help You Find Me can access it. This puts you in total control of your data. You can also update your location, submit photos and screenshots, and post random information or notes on the go. It's as easy as texting with a friend. Find out more at helpyoufind.me slash go slash 1125. The link will also be in our show notes. And you can get a 10% discount when you sign up using the code WINSTON10. That's helpyoufind.me slash go slash 1125 and use code WINSTON10 for 10% off. Our final two cases take us back to Oregon. First, we head to Redmond, then we'll travel to Portland. Angela Chan was born on January 11th, 1970. According to her family, Angela was a tomboy who was tough but feminine. There isn't a lot of information about Angela's childhood or really any of her life before she disappeared in March of 1989. It wasn't clear to me when exactly she got married, but Angela was married to a man named Bruce Chan. Bruce was a lieutenant in the Marines, and he was stationed at Camp Pendleton in California. The couple eventually separated in early 1989. It was described in some sources as an amicable estrangement or separation. The weekend of Angela's disappearance, March 27, 1989, Bruce was on leave for the Easter weekend, and he came to see Angela in Redmond. According to Angela's mother, Nancy, she'd begged Angela to quote-unquote put her foot down and tell Bruce that she was done with him. Angela and her mother had already discussed Angela's desire to divorce Bruce, and Angela planned to tell Bruce that she wanted a divorce on the day she went missing. According to her family, Angela was happy and she planned to move forward with her life. She was living with her parents in Redmond and was even supposedly engaged to another man. On the morning of March 27th, Angela and Bruce went trap shooting in an area off Highway 126 in Redmond. After they finished shooting, Bruce dropped Angela off in front of her parents' house around 2 p.m., and then he made the trip back to Camp Pendleton. It's unclear if any of Angela's family actually saw her at the parents' home, but I read one report that said Angela's parents thought that she went to stay at a friend's house in Sisters, which is only about a 30-minute drive from where Angela and her parents lived in Redmond. But on March 29th, her parents learned that Angela had never shown up at her friend's house. They called police and reported Angela as a missing person. Shortly after filing the report, Angela's yellow Datsun was found abandoned, parked on the shoulder of the road near Klein Falls Bridge. The car had a full gas tank and everything appeared to be in good working condition, so it was super unlikely that the car had just broken down and was left there. Not only that, the passenger side window was broken and a large rock was found on the front seat. Angela's white tennis shoes and her coat were also found in the car, and there are conflicting reports about whether Angela's purse was also found in the car. Some sources said it was, some sources said it wasn't, so it's not super clear, but if the purse was found in the car, that obviously raises crazy red flags. Given the status of her car and the fact that she was nowhere to be found in the area near her car, police pretty quickly classified Angela's case as an endangered missing persons with suspected foul play. Several witnesses claimed they saw Angela's car and a female matching her description around Klein Falls Bridge after Bruce said he headed back to California. 
In other words, there was some indication that Angela was still alive when Bruce was on his way back to the base. Aside from Angela's parents, the main person police wanted to interview was Angela's soon-to-be ex-husband, Bruce. According to reports, Bruce was interviewed by police several times. Police have remained silent as to whether Bruce is a suspect in his wife's disappearance. However, they have stated that they do have a suspect in Angela's case. They just don't have enough evidence to indict or prosecute the person. Please contact the Deschutes County Sheriff's Office with any information on Angela Chan's disappearance. You can call 541 388 66 Our final case for today's episode centers around the City of Roses, Portland, Oregon. This case remains unsolved after 28 years. In fact, some have called this case the most notorious cold case in Portland history. What happened to 22-year-old Catherine Eggleston? Catherine, who also went by Katie, was born to parents Paul and Heather on May 4, 1971. She was described by friends as upbeat and goal-oriented. Katie's father was a retired Seattle high school history teacher and a retired superintendent of schools in Redmond, while Katie's mom was a retired preschool teacher. Katie had three sisters as well as four nieces and nephews, all of whom she was very close to. Katie attended college at Oregon State University and was a member of the Alpha Chi Omega sorority during her time there. In June 1993, just two months before her disappearance, Katie graduated from Oregon State with a BA in English. Katie quickly found a job working in sales for AllNet Communication Services, which was based out of Lake Oswego, Oregon. Katie was staying with her sister Janet, who lived in Gresham at this time. Janet was 37 and recently divorced from her husband. By all accounts, Katie was doing really well for herself. Katie returned home in the early morning hours of August 2, 1993, after taking a weekend trip to see her boyfriend in Redmond. Redmond is about three hours southeast of Portland. Later that morning, Katie headed off to work, dressed in her best business attire. She attended a morning sales meeting before heading out to make sales calls in the Portland area. I should note, This was Katie's first day making solo sales calls, and by all accounts, she was excited about the opportunity. Katie made stops at the bank and a gas station before taking a lunch break at Burger King. This Burger King was about three blocks away from her afternoon sales calls at the Port of Portland building in Northeast Portland. After entering the Port of Portland building and presumably doing some sales calls there, at least five people would later tell police they saw Katie looking, quote, preoccupied, or worried, end quote, before getting out of an elevator into the lobby of the building with a man wearing a blue blazer around 2.15 p.m. This was the last known sighting of Katie. She was supposed to meet her supervisor for a meeting in Lake Oswego at 5 p.m., but she never showed up. When Katie didn't come home that night, her sister Janet was initially irritated, although I'm not really sure why. But Janet called her father, Paul, on August 3rd, and he made the trip from Redmond to Portland. The family quickly learned that Katie's 1986 VW Golf had been spotted in the Port of Portland parking lot shortly before 5 p.m. by a man named John Davis, who worked in a nearby building. But that's not where Katie's car was recovered from. 
At around 12 a.m. on August 3rd, a security guard found Katie's car parked in the lot of an industrial building. The car was unlocked, the keys were in the ignition, and Katie's purse and all of its contents, including cash and credit cards, were lying on the front seat. Katie's workout clothes were found in the back seat of the car, and all of the windows were rolled down. Now, I do want to pause here and say that the window thing is probably a red herring, and here's why. Katie's dad said that her car didn't have AC, and according to reports, it was 93 degrees outside on the day Katie went missing. So if she or someone else were driving her car that day, it seems fairly reasonable to me that the windows would be rolled down. What's odd to me is that despite the fact that the car was unlocked and the keys were inside and the windows were all rolled down, neither the car nor the contents of Katie's purse were stolen. Police have also stated that there was no sign of a struggle near where the car was found. Now, that's not to say a struggle didn't take place, just that if it did, it took place at another location. The only things that appeared to be missing from Katie's car were her passport and her black all-net binder. And for reference, the location where Katie's car was found was nine miles away from where it was last seen at the Port of Portland building. Not a huge distance, but someone definitely had to have moved it from one location to the other. So did Katie move her car, or did someone else move it after abducting her? Police interviewed Katie's boyfriend, who, like I mentioned, was living in Redmond at the time. They confirmed he was in Central Oregon at the time of Katie's disappearance and quickly ruled him out as a suspect. Searches took place on August 6th. Katie's employer, Allnet, even paid for additional air and ground searches with bloodhounds. They also funded a tip line for information regarding Katie's case. The man Katie was last seen with, wearing the blue blazer, has never been identified. I'm not sure if this means he hasn't been identified to the public or if his identity still remains a mystery to police as well. And how he fits into the puzzle also remains a mystery. The police have entertained two major theories over the years, neither of which sit well with the family. Katie's family and their relationship with detectives soured shortly after the investigation began. The Egglestons eventually hired their own private investigator to look into Katie's disappearance. Katie's family and friends believe she was kidnapped and murdered by someone she knew. But like I said, police aren't really following that theory. Their primary theory is that Katie left on her own to avoid testifying in a tax evasion case that was pending against her sister Janet and Janet's ex-husband. The police pointed to the missing passport as evidence supporting their theory. Janet and her ex were accused of failing to report around $190,000 in business income between 1986 and 1987. But it wasn't entirely clear to me from my research what exactly Katie was allegedly supposed to testify about. According to Katie's parents and Janet herself, there was really no reason for her to flee to avoid testifying. Besides, Janet ended up pleading guilty to the charges, so Katie wouldn't have had to testify at all. Police maintained the runaway theory until around 2004. This is when they turned their sights on a man named Joel Patrick Courtney. For those of you who've been listening since the beginning of our show, you'll know that Courtney was convicted of the kidnapping, rape, and murder of Brooke Wilberger, a student at Oregon State. For some reason, police thought Courtney might have abducted Katie based on the proximity to Brooke's murder, which, to be honest, is 
questionable, seeing as how Corvallis is about an hour and a half to two hours away, depending on traffic. And they also pointed to the similar appearance and age between Brooke and Katie. But police have no actual evidence linking Courtney to Katie's disappearance. And this honestly seems like the most unlikely scenario, in my opinion. Katie's mother, Heather, died in 2011, and her father, Paul, died in 2017. They both died without knowing what happened to their daughter. Katie's disappearance remains unsolved and gets further away from being solved every single day. If you have any information on the disappearance of Katie Eggleston, please call the Portland Police Bureau at 503-823-0446. Thank you for tuning in to our mini-series on missing persons in the Pacific Northwest. Please share these cases with your friends and your family. If you have any information about the cases we've covered in this episode, please check out our show notes for tip line and other contact information for law enforcement. And please come back next week for episode 42, covering six more missing persons cases from Washington and British Columbia. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Please subscribe and leave a review if you like the show. You can email case suggestions or comments to truecrimecatlawyer at gmail.com. The links for our social media pages are included in the show notes. You can find our discussion group on Facebook by searching for True Crime Cat Lawyer in the group section. And if you want more content, head over to Patreon to join one of our available tiers. You can get monthly mini and bonus episodes as well as early access to our main episodes. Finally, if you're interested in learning more about my co-host, you can check out her Instagram at WinstonTheCatPDX. Thanks again for listening and stay tuned for our next episode.